This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. This episode of Popaganda is brought to you by Celestial Pictures. Looking to freshen up your Hulu or Netflix queue? Add some kick-ass women from the Celestial Pictures Shaw Brothers catalog of kung fu films to your watch list. Come Drink With Me, Raw Courage, 14 Amazons are all great films featuring amazing female martial artists. Even more, leave a review on Celestial Pictures' Facebook page at facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe and you will earn a beautiful poster from a classic Shaw Brothers martial arts film. Again, that's facebook.com slash Shaw Brothers Universe. When did you feel like your family was first being watched? When I was about um, 14 or 15, um, and I woke up in the middle of the night once, it was like 3 a.m., and right outside my bedroom window on the street, there was a utility worker at 3 a.m. installing something on the streetlight. And I was so frightened, and I remember waking up my mother and telling her, oh my God, there's somebody outside the window um, that I see on the street and they're installing something on the lamp and was really freaked out. And I remember her being not that surprised about it and really calm and just saying, oh, you know, yeah, that's probably the FBI again. Um, and it's okay, don't worry about it and just go back to sleep. You know that feeling when you think someone is watching you? Maybe it's late at night and you're at home and you just get this prickly feeling and you tell yourself you're paranoid, but it sticks there. So you turn on all the lights and loud music to feel safe. Or maybe you turn off all the lights and draw shut all the curtains and check all the locks and crawl into bed and pull one hand out from under the sheet so you can text your friends, the phone glowing bright in the dark. Yeah. I know that feeling. That feeling is fear. That's what Asiya Bunjavi felt a lot growing up. Only she was right. Someone was watching. This wasn't a horror film. Her entire neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood called Bridgeview, south of Chicago, was under FBI surveillance. The neighborhood looks and feels like a standard American small town. Modest houses, wide streets, It's a predominantly Arab-American neighborhood. The center of the community for many people is the mosque. And it's still not clear why the FBI was monitoring the neighborhood during the 1990s. Asiya is now exploring that question and the impact of years-long surveillance on the neighborhood in a film called The Feeling of Being Watched. I talked with Asiya, who's co-directing the film with Alex Bushy. Growing up, we'd always whisper, even just sitting next to my sister, talking regularly about things that happened during the day. And you think it's the norm because you grew up always whispering. But you hit an age and you realize that there's a reason why we grew up whispering. It's because our conversation's being recorded. People are watching us. So what did it feel like to have that feeling of being watched and to share stories with other kids of potential FBI surveillance? Well, you know, we were kids, and so it was kind of a joke, actually. Uh, It was a funny thing. Like, any time we would see, you know, a stranger in the neighborhood that we didn't recognize, we would all be like, oh, that's probably an FBI agent. You know, sometimes we would go up to the cars that were parked on the street for hours on end, um, facing the mosque or around the neighborhood, and try to talk to these guys that are in the car and, you know, uh, you'd be like, why are you here? And what are you doing in our neighborhood? And, and try to get to the bottom of something, you know, but you know, we never really got any answers. But we kind of, it was kind of a joke, you know, we treated it as a joke. And it's something that's still there that even my younger siblings, my, bro- my little brother's 10 years younger than me. And the, the way he talks about it is really similar with his friends. And uh, even the names of the Wi-Fi networks, and this is something that's in the film, are kind of like a testament to this inside joke. And all of them, you know, there's so many of them that read things like FBI surveillance van, Wi-Fi network, or the NSA is watching us, Wi-Fi network. So it's like so pervasive, it's kind of banal. 
you know, it's uh, mundane, it's a bit of a joke. But where does it come from? Why did it happen? Why everyone feels this way? Why is it such a normal thing is the question, you know. What what sort of stories about surveillance did you remember hearing growing up? And, and what stories do you still hear today? You hear a lot of stories about the cars parked on the, you know, strange strangers in cars. And this was something that was more in the 90s. Um, people talk about, you know, um, suspicion that their phones are bugged because they hear clicking on the phone, they hear feedback on the phone, or they see utility workers working on the phone lines at strange hours. Um, and then also actual actual um, stories of informants in the neighborhood too. Um, this was something that is that's a part of our story and that happened um, where there, there are actually um, informants working for the FBI that lived in the community and that were part um, of the neighborhood. And uh, all of the suspicion around who was an informant or who might be an informant was also something I remember always talking about. It. People were very suspicious about. So there's really like just a sense of distrust of, um, you know, not knowing who you can trust and where is that coming from. And so in terms of our investigation, one of the things Alex was talking about that we found out when we started digging um, through old court records, through old news stories and microfilm, was that in fact in 1993 the FBI did start an investigation. Um, it was the largest domestic counterterrorism investigation ever conducted before 9-11, and it was in many ways focused on Bridgeview. So we found out that um, all these stories are actually coming from somewhere, that there was in fact an investigation. It was codenamed Operation Vulgar Betrayal. It's another thing that we found out. Operation and Vulgar Betrayal? It's a curious name for an investigation and obviously really piqued our curiosity, you know, like what a name, you know. So, um, you know, we're investigating why this actually happened, but we're really curious as to how it became so big, how an entire community would have been affected by the investigation of, you know, one or two people, um, and how it changed and transformed the community. How, um, you know, I remember very clearly in those early days when it was, we really felt the heat in the neighborhood, that nobody talked to anybody. The mosque, which used to be a place of community and gathering, suddenly turned into a place that people just went to for prayers and left. Um, you know, you would never talk to new people or strange people that you didn't know before. Friends suspected each other of being informants, and so they stopped talking to each other. It was very strange times. And so the idea is that this really, you know, this extended period of investigation and surveillance has had a profound impact on a very large group of people. And that's the ripple effect. So speaking from a personal standpoint, how do you feel like the feeling of surveillance and being watched for years changed you? Um, I think that, honestly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite paranoid. <laughs> and everybody that grew up in my neighborhood will say that about themselves. That, you know, there's, you know, there's always, you know, I worked on a film, for example. This is where I met Alex. We worked on an HBO documentary film called Manhunt which was about um, Osama bin Laden and the CIA hunt for bin Laden. And that entire time I worked on the film, I never said the name Osama bin Laden on the phone once. Not when I was talking with any of the producers or people involved in the film or people that we wanted to interview. I always managed to find a creative way not to say his name on the film. And this was uh, not to say his name on the phone. And this was just, this is just conditioning, you know, from the way I grew up. I didn't even think twice about it, but you just don't say certain things on the phone. And this is something that was just kind of hammer, you know, ingrained, ingrained into me from the way I grew up. And there are a lot of things like that. Um, you know, there's, um, you start to censor yourself. There's some self-censoring that happens, but it's, it's just a way of thinking that develops from growing up this way. Um, in terms of effect, I wouldn't say, I mean, terms of negative effect, I think that's a communal thing. Personally, I wouldn't say that, you know, this this had such a, a negative impact that it, you know, crippled me or had such a terrible effect on me. Um, but it but it made me want to ask questions and, and look into what happened, certainly. Clips from Masia and Alex's documentary, which is still in the works, are at thefeelingofbeingwatched.com.
On this episode of Propaganda, we're exploring fear. Personally, I am a scaredy cat. I'm quick to admit that I get really into movies and TV shows. And so if something gets too suspenseful or violent, I have to turn off the volume or fast forward through the terrifying parts. I just can't handle it. I have a zero, basically a zero tolerance. I have to look away. Horror films really get to me. And that's what they're supposed to do, to push us to explore fear. Scary films make us stop to reconsider why we're so afraid to begin with and why we feel vulnerable. Writer Leela Janelle has this essay on the, in my opinion, most terrifying scary film genre of all, the home invasion movie. You know, where people are attacked or threatened while they're just minding their own business at home. Why are we so terrified of that improbable scenario? Leela Janelle explores. In the 1967 movie, Wait Until Dark, a sadistic criminal played by Alan Arkin traps housewife Susie Audrey Hepburn in her New York apartment, forcing her to fight him to the death. Watching the film recently, my mind toggled back and forth between critiquing its ludicrous plot and surrendering to the terror it depicts. What lends such an absurd movie such real power over my mind? Home invasion movies like Wait Until Dark, Panic Room, Funny Games, In Their Skin, and When a Stranger Calls often feature women in peril, but offer no shining nights to rescue them. Instead, the women are trapped with their perpetrators, forced to fight back or die. They are movies, I think, about a kind of sadism and sociopathy that fuels sexual and domestic violence in our actual homes, but which we have no language to address directly. The dark, dangerous side of masculinity in these stories is instead embodied by the invading criminals, while kind and generous men are portrayed as rather useless. And Wait Until Dark, and in the more recent film Panic Room, men are compartmentalized. Audrey Hepburn's character has a kind, somewhat codependent husband, who's inadvertently mixed up in the story's convoluted plot but who's absent during the terrors that occur. In Panic Room, likewise, Jodie Foster's character is a recent divorcee, whose wealthy ex-husband purchases the apartment that's broken into as she and her daughter spend their first night there. What's going on? People in the house. Hey! They're in the elevator. Both of them down. He shows up later in ineffectual fashion, but has nothing to do with the menacing violence that transpires. Among these film's villains, the sadism is confined to one lone madman. In Wait Until Dark, three men invade Hepburn's apartment, the thuggish Carlino, who's killed off early, Mike Tallman, an ex-GI who's turned to crime, but who retains a conscience, and the sociopath Rote, played by Arkin. Of the three, only Tallman emerges as a whole person, capable of making a connection with Hepburn. Rote, by contrast, is almost a specter, a character whose actions and words make no logical sense, but instead seem to anthropomorphize sociopathic aggression. Did you know they wanted to kill me? I did. I knew it even before they did. They were awful amateurs, and that's why you saw through them. I saw through you, too. No, not all the way, Susie. Even now, not all the way. This pattern is repeated almost exactly in Panic Room. Jared Leto's character is a sniveling drug addict who's organized a robbery to seize the lost fortune of his recently deceased grandfather. Forrest Whitaker, one of the robbers, has a conscience. Like Foster, he's a parent, and at every turn he considers Foster's well-being as well as that of her young daughter, Kirsten Stewart. Dwight Yoakam, conversely, as Raoul, is sinister, bloodthirsty, and seemingly more concerned with inflicting pain and spreading terror than with the task his group has gathered to accomplish. Evil in these movies is consigned to figures like Rote and Raoul. The other characters, one senses, could be satisfied or reasoned with, but no such rapprochement can be reached with madmen like these two. 
Home invasion stories like these establish a richness in their heroines' lives, a domestic bliss for Hepburn, wealth and high-tech security for Foster, and then insert these sadistic criminals to illustrate that no woman's life, no matter how stable and pristine, is free from this danger. Hello. Sorry to disturb you. I'm staying next door. Please, come in. Wow, that's a really great set of clubs. Mr. Farber. What? Funny Games by filmmaker Michael Haneke is a sort of heightened meta-take on this concept. The American version features Naomi Watts and Tim Roth as a wealthy, cultured couple whose weekend getaway at a lake house is horrifically interrupted by two young, psychotic invaders, Peter and Paul, who hold them captive in the home. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, Haneke investigates an unnerving aspect of sadism by having his invaders speak with a heightened politeness, take exception to every perceived slight shown by their hosts, and display an immature preoccupation with games and rules. Like Raoul and Rote, the two reflexively blame their captives for every misfortune they visit upon them. Haneke's film ultimately becomes about his relationship with an indictment of the viewer, which is disappointing. Paul consistently breaks the fourth wall in attempts to make the viewer complicit with his actions, and by the end, the film ceases to be about Watts and her family at all, robbing the home invasion film, in my opinion, of its raison d'etre. Authors Richard Gellis, Murray Strauss, and Suzanne Steinmetz open their book Behind Closed Doors, Violence in the American Family, a study of statistics regarding sexual and domestic violence in American homes by stating, with the exception of the police and the military, the family is perhaps the most violent social group and the home the most violent social setting in our society. Our culture has shown very little facility with addressing the type of violence Gellis and Strauss document, however. Perhaps as a result, we create entertainment that depicts a wildly violent world in which homes are peaceful oases rather than the more statistically accurate opposite. We deny and repress the idea that partners ritually abuse one another or that children are trapped with violent or incestuous parents. Such scenarios, while prevalent in our society, constitute an infinitesimal amount of our narratives. How do we process these wounds and betrayals then? To my mind, it's through stories like these. Storytellers distance the abuse from the spouse to the anonymous criminal. Following that, they distance it further, quarantining the irrational cruelty present during abuse and violation within the story's irredeemable villains. Home invasion movies offer a chance to see women and children confront violence within their homes. They must fight back against homicidal adversaries. Viewers who may have experienced unsafe living situations can see them depicted, can watch actresses confront life or death moments in perhaps the only stories which offer such scenarios. Shortly after watching Wait Until Dark, I saw the TMZ elevator video of Ray Rice punching his then-fiancée. I, like most viewers, was shocked. This was the violence behind closed doors is talking about, and which we rarely, if ever, witness. Could a two-hour film be told about a relationship containing that moment? Do we have the capacity in our cultural imagination for a husband or father who commits such an act? If not, what does it say about our collective imagination when our culture itself is brimming with people who commit such acts? In writing about Law & Order SVU, New Yorker critic Emily Nussbaum argues that the show offers a fantasy of a controllable world. As in a dream, SVU takes the grisly stories that dominate the news, Steubenville, Delhi, the U.S. military, the torture house in Cleveland, and reorganizes them reducing the raw data to a format viewers can handle, Nussbaum writes. For young women who are endlessly bombarded with warnings of how to avoid assault 
watching can feel like a perverse training manual. Home invasion movies operate similarly. The terror only occurs when one's partner is away. The women try to reason, but when all else fails, they fight back, and in most cases win. It's a parallel world where one can vanquish an embodiment of evil, which bears no relation to the day-to-day -day life they inhabit. A happier development for our culture might begin with more transparency about our homes, and the admission that cruelty need not always break in there, because its name is already on the lease. When we can face that, we may no longer need boogeymen like Rote and Raoul to bear the burden of humanity's dark side for us. was writer Leela Janelle. You can read more of her work at Bitch Media. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about fear. Movie buff Sarah Century, who has the claim to fame of having watched every single lesbian film ever available on Netflix, wanted to discuss the role that queer female characters have played in horror films. Horror films explore what we're afraid of, both the things that make us vulnerable and the taboos of society. And queerness is certainly part of that, as Sarah explains. October is like Christmas for horror film fans. Although many people categorically dismiss horror as a misogynistic genre, many feminists have discussed the ways that horror can be used to great effect as social commentary. Taboo subjects and stigmatized identities have always been fodder for horror films, which, at their best, poke and prod at the fears and biases of their audiences. The first horror films to feature queer female characters are some of the first films of any kind to portray queer women. Though there were a few not-horror-related queer female characters before her, one of the earliest examples of a queer character in a movie was the Countess in Dracula's Daughter. The film is the 1936 sequel to 1931's Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. Like her blood-sucking father, the elegant Countess has a bizarre, murderous interest in young women. She seduces them with extravagant gifts and a hypnotizing stare. This makes her one of the first over-the-top queer villains to appear on screen. The Countess is a character who helped define what would become a trope. The film's poster clearly plays into the psychosexual drama of the film, with actor Gloria Holden's eyes peering at the viewer under the slogan, she gives you that weird feeling. In her book Uninvited, Classical Hollywood Cinema and Lesbian Representability, Patricia White makes the point that even sparse, slight, or negative images of lesbian women in film helped form lesbian identities. Audiences had to read into what they didn't show as much as with what they did show. In one scene, Dracula's dark countess stares at her sleeping victim with intense sexuality, her lips drawing ever closer to hers, until at the last minute, she's interrupted. It is only the implication of gayness, but it's a very strong implication, to say the least. It's difficult to imagine how truly powerful these suggestive images must have been to queers during this time, as well as how foreboding they must have been for straight audiences. Actually, the predominant image of queer women in horror much of the 20th century was the lesbian vampire. There are a great deal more lesbian vampire movies than pretty much any other kind of queer movie. Calling these films queer is, of course, dicey territory, considering the fact that they were almost exclusively created by straight people with straight audiences in mind. But the story has appeared again and again. After Dracula's Daughter, there was Blood and Roses in 1960, Daughters of Darkness, Vampiros Lesbos, and the films of Jean Roland in the 1970s, The Hunger in the 80s, Nadja in the 90s, the Countess and We Are the Night for Millennials, and on and on and on. There are dozens of films with the same essential plot. One or more lesbian vampires roll into town, steal someone's girlfriend, and get killed by a dude in the grand finale. 
The vampires in lesbian vampire movies are evil, murderous, and cruel. But honestly, I tend to sort of like them. Sometimes I even relate to them. When you're struggling to find empowered queer women on screen, scarcity dictates that sometimes you latch on to some problematic favorites. No character is more problematic than the villain of 1971 German lesbian vampire masterpiece, Vampiros Lesbos, aka Countess Nadine Carity. This is a character who is definitely evil, but I still relate to her so much because one, her fashion is on point. Two, her crush on professional girlfriend Linda Westinghouse is on point. Three, her tearful origin story is on point. And four, she's a well-read queer performance artist with a passionate feminist perspective that wears black dresses with red lipstick and scarves a lot. I'm literally describing both her and myself right now. There is a four minute long scene where she dances around the stage with a naked female mannequin touching herself erotically. I can't watch her death scene. It's way too real for me. Whether she's a vampire or a mere mortal, the seductive lesbian out to ruin the lives of innocent young ladies quickly became a film trope. In the 1940s to the 1960s, the evil lesbian was profoundly effective in shaping public consciousness of gays. At the time, many institutions had personal vendettas against gay people and the development of queer subcultures as well. The J. Edgar Hoover era FBI villainized queers with unsettling propaganda that sometimes blatantly endorsed homophobic violence. Anti-gay themes are found in a lot of pop culture from the era, but horror films gave us a unique window on this fear. In 1940, Alfred Hitchcock released his film Rebecca, based on the 1938 Daphne du Maurier book of the same name. The story follows a young woman who enters a marriage with a reclusive millionaire whose first wife mysteriously passed away. The younger woman, who is tellingly nameless, and referred to only as the second Mrs. De Winter throughout the film, must navigate living in a secluded mansion where all the other characters, her husband included, are haunted by the metaphorical, or not, ghost of Rebecca De Winter. In Rebecca, there is not one, but two queer characters. One is Mrs. Danvers, a famously wicked housekeeper who tries to drive the second Mrs. De Winter to suicide multiple times throughout the story. The other, the deceased Rebecca, who is described in reverent, haunting tones by those who knew her. She is remembered as being strong-willed and beautiful, with many lovers outside of her terribly unhappy marriage. Even in the afterlife, she has a forceful spirit. Of course, it's 1940, and that means that we find out that she was definitely evil by the end of the film. This exact relationship between a ghost and her incredibly violent lover is almost identically repeated in 1944's The Uninvited. One queer woman is completely intangible, appearing only as a ghost, and yet she is the malevolent force that causes every problem the main characters have in the film. She eventually tires of scaring cats, making flowers wither, and causing drastic temperature shifts, so she escalates to trying to convince a teen girl to walk off a cliff. Like Rebecca and her Mrs. Danvers, this film's ghost has an implied sexual connection with a similarly murderous middle-aged woman now obsessed by her memory. It's 1944, so they don't explicitly state that the two were girlfriends, but there's a lot of scenes of the living female character sighing dreamily at, oh right, the gigantic portrait of her dead friend in a sexy pose that she keeps literally in every room she ever stands in. The evil lesbian trope carries on well into the modern era, with movies such as 2003 French film High Tension, which is not so much about a lesbian relationship as it is about a lesbian fixating on her straight friend to the point of utter insanity. One exception to the endless images of the mentally ill or wicked lesbian is in the 1963 film The Haunting. We don't talk about the 1999 remake. This was based on the Shirley Jackson novel The Haunting of Hill House, but there's one surprising change. The character Theo, whose queerness is implied only briefly in the novel, shows up in the film version as a full-out gay psychic. I can't stress enough that Theo from The Haunting is probably my favorite character in all of horror. Why? because she's a psychic lesbian. 
She flirts with the main character and almost punches a bro for trying to rub her shoulders. Because who wouldn't? Theo, I love you. Besides my personal affection for her, Theo does what has been proven time and again as almost statistically impossible, which is to be gay and survive a horror film. She is visually fascinating with a starkly different wardrobe than the rest of the cast, and a cryptic half-smile. Theo is pretty much the cover of a lurid 1950s pulp novel about lesbian witches come to life, and it is glorious. The mysterious way she discloses her homosexuality is brilliant. Theo discusses an apartment she shares with someone, leading the confused main character Eleanor to ask, Are you married? Theo looks her in the eye and softly says, No. Later, Eleanor openly calls her a mistake of nature, and Theo's mouth opens slightly to respond, then closes again, in a moment which I feel somewhat profoundly demonstrates how difficult it is to respond eloquently to that level of homophobia. Modern horror, on the other hand, has developed a penchant for the martyred or innocent lesbian character, who is unfailingly brutalized or murdered by the end of the film. These are horror films, and brutalization is to be expected, but there's something unsettlingly specific about the idea of the angelic queer woman who was punished quite literally to death for her sexuality. In 2012 film Here Comes the Devil, the movie begins with a young, closeted queer woman having sex with her girlfriend before being attacked by a possessed male in an exceptionally violent scene. The girl is never seen again, and mentioned only in passing once. The opening scene seems to be a way to slip a hot lesbian sex scene into the film. In the 2008 movie Martyrs, a young woman is trying to help her violently, mentally ill friend. Our queer hero undergoes what can only be described as some of the most intense and horrifying situations conceivable to the human mind as a result of acts of altruism towards her friend crush. Her queerness is conveyed only by a very brief scene in which she tries to kiss her friend but is immediately rebuffed. It's practically invisible, yet it's the whole reason for the film. Images of queer women as saintly or martyr-like honestly freak me out a lot more than the images of us as evil, sycophantic murderers or vampires, because it displays us as eternal victims. Martyrs is famously one of the most unflinchingly violent and gory films of all time, and I can only recommend it to those who have the ability to watch extremely shocking imagery for 90 plus minutes straight. As a horror fan, I think it's really good and interesting, but as a human... A queer human, I definitely had to stop and recollect myself after watching it. It's not always easy to perpetually watch the few representations of queer women on screen meet such violent and horrifying ends. While modern horror films are more likely to feature queer women, and not just lesbian vampires, than early films in the genre, they still often frame queerness as taboo. Even these days on screen, lesbians have something different about them. They're set off from the rest of the characters by their sexuality. Just like Dracula's Countess, filmmakers still set up queer women to give us that weird feeling. That was writer Sarah Century. You can look her up on Twitter, where she describes herself as the Joan Crawford of the queer avant-garde underground. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today's episode is all about fear. For our next segment, we're going to talk with somebody who's not afraid to get on stage. Amy Lamb did this interview with comedian Jenny Yang. Hi, Amy. Hey. Um, Who is Jenny Yang? Can you tell us about her? So she's a Los Angeles-based comedian and writer, and and I kind of want her to be my life coach. (laughs) Yeah, but I think her fee is too much for me. I offered her shrimp chips. Shrimp chips? Yeah, like a lifetime supply, which would be like a bag or two a week, and she was like, I don't think that will work out for me. Uh, (laughs) She wants cold, hard cash to be your life coach. But she's great, and and in this interview, she just talks about how, you know, she, she uses fear to work for her. Hmm. And it drives her work. Um, and that's something that I think that for many of us who kind of let like let fear hold us back, it's it's amazing to hear like a woman talk about, no, I, I use it to drive me. I use it to work for me. 
Um, and it was super fun talking to her. Let's listen. So I'm here now with comedian Jenny Yang to talk about dun 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 fears. Ah! <laughs> that was not a recording. That was me creating a little soundbite for you. Thank you. Uh, so maybe we can start off by talking about your background a little bit. Oh, gosh. Um, I was born in Taiwan, moved to Los Angeles when I was little and thought I was just going to be some kind of young professional buying full price at anthropology. And I was doing that for a while. I love anthropology candles. They're like $100 each. But anyway... I did that for a little bit. I worked in the labor movement. I worked in politics. And then I decided, life's too short, Amy. I need to go and be a comedian. Was that an That's e- the short version. <laughs> yeah. Was that an easy decision to make? You know what? It, it was really tough because what we're talking about fear, right? I mean, I think I get a lot of people's like contact fear because they see that I'm doing a, a job that's not traditional, quote unquote. And um, and they feel like they could just kind of confess to me all their fears around how much they either hate their job or they wish they were doing something more creative. And so I, I actually am around fear a lot, both, you know, in trying to perform regularly and and trying to be a creative and trying to sell my ideas to the world. Not literally, sometimes literally, but not. Um, and so... I don't know. I feel like, you know, managing fear and uh, being a friend of your fear. Be a friend. Let's make this an NPR podcast. <laughs> um, being a friend of your fear, um, I think, is a huge part of the work of being self-employed and entrepreneurial and a creative. How does that play into like being a stand-up comedian? Because I imagine that, first of all, you're getting up there by yourself the spotlight's yeah. on you. And and I feel like when you're on stage like that, you can barely see the audience because there's lights in your eye, right? And a lot of your comedy, um, you know, talks about your own background, your own identity, your ethnicity, and you're exposing yourself in mm-hmm. so many ways. And when you first began, like, did fear play a big role into you coming into comedy? Um, and what did you do with it? Did it help you? Yeah, I mean, um, I think what happened for me is the the pressure to want something different in my life overwhelmed the fear that probably paralyzed me. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's not that fear goes away. I, I love the saying that they circulate. I don't know, Google it. It's somewhere where, you know, when people say, gosh, I'm, you know, whether it's comedy, like they're always like, oh my gosh, you're, you're so, you're so brave. You're so brave to do stand up comedy. Like I'm fighting cancer or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> really? Is this... You're so brave. Is that what you say to comics? Come on. So it's really, I feel like it's more that like we are managing our fear. Like fear doesn't go away, but we try to have the courage to uh, overwhelm the fear with a desire to perform or create, you know? And so I think, yeah, like for me, it just came to a point where what I was doing in my career, which is like, you know, burning myself out to like fight for social justice, blah, 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 in this professional capacity, that, that was not rewarding me as much anymore. And, and I needed to find something in, to replace it. And, and that sort of, the, honestly, the fear, actually, it's still fear, the fear of not doing the thing that I know I could be capable of that is expressing my creativity, the fear of not doing that, started to overwhelm me right and so that I turned that into a motivation and and a direction so you use fear as, I did like, as your power source this shit we're gonna get martial arts on this shit Amy <laughs> just because we're two Asians we're gonna go yin and yang on this you gotta you gotta transform that fear like it's Aikido you know what I'm saying you gotta go defensive with the offensive <laughs> That's what's going to happen. That's basically what happened, you know? Like, you know, I didn't, I, I quit my job because I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. And I wanted to just take a break. Because, Amy, I, I've been a recovering overachiever. I've been with a briefcase and shoulder pads since like fucking fifth grade, okay? So just imagine little Jenny with bangs, okay? Just killing it, right? Nonstop. Taking calls, taking meetings. And like, finally, 
right? Finally, I said to myself, I'm, I'm like, I'm in my 20s. I'm going to die. <laughs> and I don't want to die doing this anymore. You know what I mean? And I need to freaking stop it. So that was the first motivation. It's like, I'm going to die. That's fear. So let's stop this job. I was burning me out. Um, even though I still support the labor movement. Um, and, and then I took a break. That literally was the first time I took a break, you know, where I didn't have to do happen? anything. Um, mm, I don't know, like late 20s. So I was like, I need to, I need to take care of this. I need to take care of myself. I went to group therapy. I don't know. I was like on my last dime. And I threw up a Hail Mary, like, okay, maybe I need to just get a full-time job as an assistant, as one does in Los Angeles, um, if you're not killing it as a self-employed creative. And um, I got a job. And so I got a job uh, on Whitney on NBC, the second season, and um, as an assistant to the producer. And from there, I just was able to make contacts, you know, on that level, but also continue to improve my stand-up and kind of build that hustle. And it was during that time, um, three years ago, that I uh, was able to um, produce the first ever mostly female Asian American stand-up comedy tour called Disoriented Comedy. It was like on the downtime of that full-time job that was paying for my bills that I was able to set up and create this new tour that actually ended up being one of the main ways that I could make a living and get a, a platform out there. Um, so... You were talking about how when you were a kid, you're uh, a master overachiever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <Killing> you, <laughs> with your shoulder pads and your briefcase. Yeah. Uh, so while you were doing that, like, I I'm, I'm assuming that you were like overachieving in like really traditional ways, like getting good grades in school or. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then knowing that you were going to become like a real professional after you. Whatever that meant. Yeah. 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 So where where did your creative like where did you house that creativity at that time while you were overachieving and all these other things that didn't nurture your creativity? Oh, I, I it was called extra credit, Amy. <laughs> Don't you know about extra credit at school? <laughs> I I was I am and student I was an activities. <laughs> that's where I channeled my creativity. Um, honestly, like there's a joke that I tell about like how if you really want to understand who I am as a person, you all you need is like one fact, and that's that my freshman year of high school, I rewrote a Snoop Dogg rap song for trigonometry <laughs> class. Okay, if you no, no. remember, you extra have to credit. Some, you have to spit some of the extra bars. credit, Amy. You missed that part. It was for extra credit. I didn't even have to do Did it. Did you do it for the class? Oh yeah, I rec we I like I fucking laid down some tracks. Okay, do you remember and then, any of and the then bars? We, and then and then we cut it together as a video, <laughs> like a compilation video that you sell on TV, like a mixtape. Mm hmm. And it was about the like the 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 wrapping function, tangents, cosines. Like it's out of control. <laughs> You guys, it's like one, two, three point one fo. Jen, doggy dog, like three point one fo. Okay, three point one fo. I'd made a pie joke on a fucking Snoop Dogg track. You know, every t every time I get so always asked, like I'm not even that much of a veteran in stand. I'm still considered a newbie in stand up. You know, um, and I've gotten amazing opportunities in just this short amount of time. But like, people think that I could give them advice. So sometimes people are like, oh. Jenny, so what do you? What's your advice for someone who's starting out in stand up? And it's like, you just do it. That's literally that's all. Like, it's a more than any other comedic format. Actually, it's actually the thing where from zero to doing it is just doing it. Right? There's no other thing. Like, you just get up on stage and you talk to people. Now, it doesn't guarantee that you're gonna have a joke, right? or that they'll laugh. But what it does is it gives you the muscle memory of how it feels to try to communicate an idea and to hear feedback around whether something hits as funny. So it sounds like you're fearless in attacking like the the work of comedy, but I wonder if like in your person in the sets that you do, are there any like topics or subjects that you're afraid to talk about or that's something that doesn't work for you? Oh, yeah. I definitely feel like I still have so much to grow in terms of talking about stuff um, publicly. Like the stuff that I this is I this is ideally what I would love for myself to be able to do, which is to grow in my craft of uh, being able to perform and tell jokes 
in such a way that I would feel very confident talking about topics that are very sensitive, whether that's very personal or it's politically charged, right? And so I'm, you know, dabbling with that right now. But, you know, I feel like with stand-up, I think with many crafts, you know, you have this aspiration of like being able to be brilliant at talking about something that might be really hard. And that's usually when it's great because people need to hear those things. But your skill level and craft needs to meet up to, to be able to handle that. Otherwise, you know, you want to talk about rape, sexism, uh, you know, uh, gender issues, sexuality. Usually those are tough issues for a reason. Anything that's taboo or that's tough to talk about in polite conversation, if a comic wants to talk talk about it, it's like it's like uh, radioactive, it's like handling radioactive energy, right? And so if you are not skilled enough to handle it, then you're gonna fucking die. Like you're, you're gonna fuck it up for yourself and people are gonna hate you. Like that's what's gonna happen. And so, um, and so I would like to come up, get to a point where the stuff that I talk about with the people closest to me around the things that I care most about, which is some weird kind of mesh of like personal growth, self-help book arena, um, shame and vulnerability and being an immigrant and being a woman and sexuality and politics, like all of that, if that all of that was mushed into a thing, because that's what I talk about with my closest friends, right? How do we grow? How do we be aware, conscious people? How do we have an impact on the world? How do we confront our own personal fears of, of, about our own skills and, and, and abilities? How do we live a happy life? And how do we enjoy, take care of ourselves, feel love? I want to talk about all of that on stage in a way that honors the authenticity of what I care about as well as entertain people and make people laugh yeah let's talk about other stuff let's talk about your fears amy lamb <laughs> this isn't about we're me. gonna turn this back on you <laughs> fuck this mess this is some bullshit propaganda <laughs> whatever bitch magazine whatever i'm gonna i'm gonna fight the power right now what are you afraid of amy lamb uh well i think my biggest fear is of a failure Right? Like, do you, I mean, you, it seems like you. Why are you turning it back on me, Amy Lamb? <laughs> that's my job. Otherwise, I'll fail failure. at my job. That's true. <laughs> no, failure, that's true. I mean, comedy is really good. Doing stand-up is really good for, um, for, um, for being a, a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> it is. And actually, part of what I've been doing with my friends, who I ha I'm surrounded by an amazing community of creatives, um, just even just to practice it on something new, um, I want to do it again, but I ran a, a thing called Five Days of Fail where I scheduled a Saturday where we have like a mini share session uh, with, you know, friends of different formats and, and genres um, where we commit to every day for five days doing one thing of a craft that we are doing or that we want to try. And then on every day we submit it. They emailed it to me and then I would post on my blog, you know, everyone's like two sentences of how it went that day just so that everyone can has, has a level of accountability. And then on that Saturday after Monday through Friday, every day submitting something um, on that Saturday, we do a little showcase with each other, intimate showcase. And so, for example, my friend Prisca, Prisca Music, um, Priscilla, she wrote a song every day. Who does that? Well, she did it. She has a day, a day job, but she wrote a song. Let's just make our goals to fail in the safe way. Because sometimes stakes feel so high. You know, the hopes and dreams of our parents are pinned upon us. This is assuming you're an immigrant child or whatever. You know, um, that we need safe places to play and to fail. That was Amy Lam talking with comedian Jenny Yang. You can watch all of Jenny Yang's great videos at jennyyang.tv. I hate the feeling of being afraid. 
That's why I can't watch scary movies. I just don't like that prickly feeling where I start envisioning all the things that could happen. But what's clear to me is that fear is useful. It tells us something. It's a feeling that we should pay attention to. Fear communicates what we're unable to say sometimes. It expresses without words how we're vulnerable as people, as women. Sometimes it tells us what we don't think we can do. Why are we afraid to get on stage, to take the mic, to make a joke? And fear left undiscussed and unexplained and unexamined can tear us apart as individuals and as communities. We're so often taught, especially as women, to ignore our feelings, to be tough. But instead of denying our fears, we should investigate them. To say, yes, that feeling I have is real. Maybe it's irrational, but it's there, it's real, I feel it. I don't want to live with fear, but I don't want to tell myself just to get over it either. If fear is an alarm bell, what's ringing the alarm? Peering into that dark question, well, that takes some bravery. But don't think that with all this philosophizing, I am ever, ever going to watch funny games or Panic Room. That sounds horrible. I will stick to the spookiness level of the X-Files. Thank you very much. That's fear enough for me. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Ooh.